Good morning, Christ Central Church. As Richard said, my name is Timothy. Excited to be with you all this morning to open up God's Word together. Uh, we are continuing in our sermon series on the life of Jacob entitled Revive by Grace. Uh, and as we've been walking through uh, the latter half of the book of Genesis, we've been looking at how as we encounter God's grace, this revival happens. New life is experienced in our relationship with God as we turn back to Him. And this morning we're going to see a somewhat different kind of revival. Our text this morning reveals the revival that takes place not in our relationship with God so much, but in our relationship with one another. How as we experience God's grace, not only is the vertical relationship transformed, but also our horizontal relationships as well. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32 and 33. You've got just 33 in your bulletin, but I'm going to read a little bit of 32 to offer the context of what's going on here in our story as we re-engage with this uh, relationship between Jacob and Esau. So I'm going to invite you now, if you're able to stand, for the reading of God's Word. We'll start in chapter 32 at verse 3. This is God's Word. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And verse 13. So Jacob stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. That is quite a gift. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? Where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And then now chapter 33, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. 
But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and, he, and Jacob took, and Esau took him. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask now that you would speak to us through your holy word, that you would allow me, your servant, to get out of the way so that we can encounter you, a living God, and be transformed. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Relationships are really difficult, aren't they? I know that's not news to any of us, but I I imagine that most everyone in this room could probably name someone who you used to be really close to who you don't really speak to anymore. If we've dared to risk much by giving our heart to another, then we know what it's like to have that relationship taken from us. We want to believe, as Alfred Tennyson said, that it is better to have loved than lost than never to have loved before. But for those of us who have experienced much loss, it's hard to be sure. Jacob and Esau experienced what it's like to love and lose. Twin brothers likely connected at the hip as little boys. You probably never saw one without the other, best buds. And yet one day Jacob commits a single act that ruins everything. Jacob steals Esau's blessing, his entire inheritance, and as a result Esau terminates the relationship once and for all. All that was beautiful between these boys is forever lost. But God. Our story this morning is a story of a relationship so deeply and completely fractured, utterly beyond repair, but that by God's grace is made whole again. And so I want to begin this morning by encouraging you to look inwardly And consider the relationships in your life that are broken. To bring to mind those places where disunity and bitterness is festering. And as you consider those relationships, I want to encourage you to be open to what God might be inviting you to this morning. And what he might be inviting you to in those relationships with those people. Because our text this morning is an invitation. It's an invitation to go to work. 
to labor towards the prize of reconciliation, to fight against disunity and bitterness and to fight for unity and wholeness. And I know you all know this, but the reason God invites you into this work is because that's what we have been created for. Created in God's image, created to image a God who exists in perfect relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who has invited us into that relationship with him and called us to live out that relationship with one another. And so as we begin, I want to place before you Jesus' high high priestly prayer found in John 17. This is the prayer that he prays to his Father over you and over me that reminds us of what Christ longs for for you and for me. He prays that they, that we, may be all one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also might be in us. And so that's the vision that is placed before us. And this reconciliation that we're going to do, it's, it's hard work. And so this morning, I want to invite you to go to school with me. We're going to go to the school of Jacob and the school of Esau. So let's begin with the school of Jacob. Now, it's very normal when we read a, a story, especially a story in the Bible, that we ask the question, where do I fit into this story? Which character do I identify with? Which one is me? Which reminds me of a, a funny childhood memory. I was sitting around the table with my extended family and my mom who often asks thought-provoking and sometimes gimmicky questions. She brings this doozy of a question to the table and she says, if you could be any character in the nativity scene, the manger scene, who would you be? And the correct answer is obviously Jesus. It's always Jesus. That's who we're supposed to answer. That's the Sunday school answer. That's what you're supposed to say. But my Aunt Margaret, my great Aunt Margaret, she was not a Sunday school kind of girl. Uh, And she had this kind of dry wit and dark sense of humor, and she just blurts out, I'd have to be the ass. And for the record, kids, I'm not using a curse word. She was identifying with the donkey in the story. She most identified with the ass. Unlike Aunt Margaret, most of us identify with the hero in the story. We want to be the good guy. Which is why in this story, we tend towards Esau. When we read this story, we think that that's who we are. We're the one who has been wronged. Now, we know some Jacobs. We know a lot of Jacobs, those dirty, rotten scoundrels. Some of you are already thinking about some of those people who you're going to send this sermon to later today, which I don't want you to do that. I want you to begin instead by being open to the fact that although all of us have been hurt, there's no question you've been hurt, but it's possible maybe even likely that you've hurt others also. And in light of that truth, maybe you do need to go to the school of Jacob and consider what reconciliation looks like for you as Jacob, one who has potentially hurt another. There's two things here, two character traits that we see in Jacob that I think we can learn from this morning. First, there's initiative, and then second, there's humility. First thing that we see in this work of reconciliation is that it requires initiative. Chapter 32, verse 3, it says that Jacob sent messengers to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. It's obvious here, but we're stating that Jacob is the one who makes the first move. And this first move that he makes, it's a big one. I, don't, I know we don't see the geography in our minds here, but, but Jacob is, is going way out of his way. Seir is not on the way to Bethel where he is headed. 
He's going in the exact opposite direction. It would have been a lot easier if, if Jacob had just sent a note that said, I'm really sorry, brother. I hope we can work this out. But no, he goes way out of his way because he wants to have this conversation in person. Why did he do that? I like how one commentator says it. He says, geographically, the call to Bethel would take him nowhere near Esau. But spiritually, Jacob could reach Bethel no other way. What the commentator is saying there is is that there's often spiritual consequences to being out of accord with a brother or sister. The horizontal rift that we have can lead to a vertical rift also. The, The distance that we have between one another can cultivate distance between us and God. This is what Jesus is getting at in this famous Sermon on the Mount. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is saying is that to commune well with God, we must be reconciled to one another. Have you ever experienced that before? Or you've come to church and you just can't seem to focus because you're just so upset by what he said or what, what she did. Or maybe you're trying to engage in, in worship, and, but your heart just won't go there because you know that you really wronged that person and you can't really get it out of your mind and you just can't really sing along in light of that. It's that dissonance that that, that causes Jacob to go out of his way to see his brother. He takes the initiative. He takes that bold first step towards reconciliation. The second thing that we see here is that in terms of this reconciliation, the posture posture with which we come is really important. Look again at chapter 33, verse 3. It says, Jacob went on before his family, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. I think culturally we can imagine here that that Jacob's kind of nodding his head as he walks forward, but that's not what is happening here. Jacob would have been literally placing his nose in the dirt, prostrate, face down before his brother, not once, but seven times. This was the posture of a servant before his master. And let's, let's not forget, church, Jacob is the one who actually got the blessing. Even though he stole it, he, he, he's now the one who is above Esau. And so it actually would be right and appropriate for Esau to be the one face down in the dirt. But we see here this beautiful picture of humility, a declaration of remorse. Jacob is, is literally saying with his body, I messed up, brother, and I'm sorry. And so I think we can clearly see the invitation for you and for me as we work towards reconciliation with one another is to lead with humility. The invitation to as much as possible acknowledge the ways in which we have been wrong. It's not hard to see that here in the text, but it's really hard to do that, isn't it? I prefer to lead with the rationale for why I did something wrong. I know I messed up, but you know I was having a really bad day. Or, you know, you make it really hard to to, to be kind or whatever the excuse might be. That's not what Jacob does. No excuses. He gets low. He embraces a posture of humility before his brother. Church, as we sit in the school of Jacob, I want to encourage you to ask those questions of your own heart and your own life. Are there people whom you have hurt? 
People whom God is calling you to initiate towards, to move towards in a posture of humility with the hope that by God's grace you might be one again. Which brings us now to the school of Esau. I don't mean to alarm you, but if you thought the school of Jacob was tough, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's one thing to say you're sorry, but it's a whole other thing to accept an apology, to forgive, right? And we all know when you experience how hard it is to forgive, which begs the question, I think, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to do the hard work that forgiveness requires? And I want to answer that question first by looking at science and then scripture. And 1998, the John Templeton Foundation awarded research grants to 29 of the leading scholars in the social sciences field to study this very topic, the topic of forgiveness. And all kinds of data was gathered from this study. It's fascinating stuff. But there was really one primary discovery that rose to the surface out of all this research, and that was that the person that stands to gain the most from forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. To ask for forgiveness is important, and that's maybe even a necessary task, but the real dividends come for the one who chooses to do the forgiving. Now, they could have saved a lot of money by just opening up their Bibles because it's all over the Scripture, but I think it's important to know that science is getting it right here. Look with me now at two different passages in the New Testament before we come back to our text Let's start at Luke 17. The context here is that Jesus is giving this message to a large crowd. He's talking about things like money and marriage. And then he turns to his disciple for one of those private lessons, one of those lessons that are a little bit harder to digest. And and this lesson is on forgiveness. What do you do when someone sins against you? And verse 3 says, when your brother sins against you, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. That's strange. When your brother sins against you, look at yourself. I don't know about you, but my gut reaction when someone sins against me is to look at them and maybe even point the finger at them to make sure they know that they're in the wrong. But Jesus is offering a helpful warning here. He's saying, watch out. When someone sins against you, because in that moment, you actually are the one who is in danger. But in danger of what? Look again with me now. This is Hebrews chapter 12. This is where we see what the havoc that unforgiveness wreaks in our lives. Verse 15, the author of Hebrews says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, because by it many become defiled. The danger of unforgiveness is bitterness. Bitterness is really dangerous because it defiles the one who has it. Now, I'm not much of a gardener, but I know a thing or two about weeds. I know that I hate them. I know that they're impossible to get rid of. And I know that in Durham, if you use Roundup, you will get crucified on the neighborhood listserv. But the problem with weeds is the roots. It's easy to kind of remove the top, what's above the surface, but I can't seem to ever get rid of the roots, what's underneath the surface. So the weeds just keep popping back up. The author of Hebrews says that 
bitterness works in the same way. It's like a root that operates underneath the surface, underneath the surface of our hearts. And although we may not always be able to see it, those roots, they're, they're at work in us, wrapping themselves around our hearts. And before we know it, the bitterness has taken over and it has control of our heart. That's what happened to Esau. Listen to how this bitterness shows up in his own heart. This is chapter 27, right after Jacob stole the blessing. It says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. You see how the roots of bitterness have completely taken over. Can anyone here resonate with Esau? Don't raise your hand. It's, it's funny, but it's kind of not. Like, you'd never do it, but the thought of that person who hurt you so bad dying doesn't sound so bad, does it? Remember the name of our sermon series, Revived by Grace. What we see here is that somehow by God's grace, Esau is transformed from a person who wants to kill his brother to someone who showers him with kisses. And so there's hope. There's hope for, for you and me that by God's grace, we can do that too. But how? Let's go to the school of Esau. There's three actions that Esau takes that inform us how to move from this place of bitterness to forgiveness. The first thing that we see, and I think this is not to be taken lightly, Esau sets up some appropriate boundaries. See, the truth is that Esau has some real data that proves that Jacob is not a safe person. In the past, when Esau was vulnerable, Jacob took advantage of him. Jacob hurt him. And so it would be unwise for Esau to deny the truth of what has happened in the past and position himself to get hurt again by Jacob. So what does he do? He sets up boundaries. Chapter 32, verse 6, the, the messengers return to Jacob saying, we came to meet your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. These are not 400 men showing up for the family reunion. This is a standard militia. He's brought bodyguards. He's taking appropriate action based on the fact that Jacob has hurt him in the past and he's not sure that Jacob won't hurt him again. And so there's a, a helpful and important application here. God is clearly passionate about forgiveness. He's passionate about reconciliation, but not at the price of your safety. And so, church, there may be people in your life that are not in a place to safely do the work of reconciliation with you, which doesn't mean that we don't forgive them, but it might mean that we exercise great caution in the way that we enter into reconciliation with those people. Sometimes we have to do the work of forgiveness, and we never get to do the work of reconciliation. And that's why Esau brings the army with him. He doesn't avoid the conversation altogether, but he makes sure that he's safe in it. And not until Esau becomes convinced that Jacob is safe does he abandon the army and draw close to his brother. Not until he sees his brother's face in the dirt, the posture of immense humility does Esau draw near. The next thing that we see that Esau does is that he identifies with the wrongdoer. And this is really tough. Look again at verse 4. It says, but Esau. 
That may not be much, but I think the but right there is, is really significant. What it implies is that there was actually an appropriate response for Esau when, when Jacob came and bowed down low. See, J- Jacob had done him wrong, and Esau was, was very comfortable and should have been easy for him to stand there and let Jacob grovel. Like, he deserved that, right? He should be facing the ground after what he did. But Esau doesn't do that. He doesn't respond appropriately. The text says that Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. See, Jacob came to Esau as a servant, but Esau embraced him as a brother, as an equal. Church, the greatest deterrent to forgiveness is that we fail to identify with the one who has hurt us. One of the most impactful quotes for me on this subject comes from Miroslav Volf. He's a theology professor at Yale, and he says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. That's profound if you let that sink in. The work of forgiveness stalls because we begin to believe the person who has hurt me is subhuman. And then secondly, we wrongfully believe that we could never hurt someone like that, like they did to us. And when we think like that, forgiveness and reconciliation becomes impossible. And so I ask you, in what ways have you excluded your enemies from the community of humans? And in what ways are you excluding yourself from the community of sinners? Because only if you can, like Esau, truly identify with the one who has wronged you and truly identify yourself as one who is more than capable of the same, if not worse, only then will you be in place to pursue true reconciliation. The last thing that Esau does here is he refuses to make Jacob suffer. He does this somewhat ironically by accepting a gift. I think it's worth noting here that the biblical authors, they're borrowing this word forgiveness from the field of economics. It's normally used in reference to a financial debt being wiped away. We still use the word that way. But what does economics have to do with relationship? I think Keller is really helpful here. Tim Keller points out that that when someone has hurt you or wronged you, you inwardly feel as though that person owes you something. There's a debt that has to be paid. But what do they owe you? When it comes to hurt, we believe that that person owes us the same currency that we receive. They owe us pain. That's how they pay us back. We want them to suffer. There's a number of ways that we can make someone who's hurt us pay this debt. We can go and yell at them, scream in their face, tell them how horrible they are. We can talk about them behind their back and destroy their reputation. Or maybe the most ugly Of all, we can root for their demise. We can long for their life to fall apart, and we rejoice every time something bad happens to them. I think you can see how that way of thinking can be so intoxicating. Yet, true forgiveness is to do the opposite. It's to completely let them off the hook, to trust that God is going to take care of justice, to no longer require them to pay off the debt. You guys have 
done math before. The problem is if, if they're not going to pay the debt, then who is? And in forgiveness, that person who has to pay off the debt is you. That's what forgiveness is about. It's about paying the debt for the one who has hurt you. What does that look like, practically speaking? It looks like this. When you want to go tell the person off, you choose not to. Ooh, that hurts. Hold your tongue. When you want to go slander this person behind their back, you choose not to. Ow. Hurts. You paid some of that debt. Maybe the biggest of all, when you feel your heart beginning to yearn, yearn for this person's demise, longing for them to fall apart, for their life to fall apart, instead you pray for them. For God to pour out his blessings upon them and ooh, that really hurts. That's, that's you paying the debt for them. Where do we see that here in, in the text? Towards the end of this passage, we have this strange interaction between Jacob and Esau around Jacob's gift. And Esau, initially, he wants nothing to do with it. But after much begging and pleading, verse 11 says that Jacob urged him and Esau took it. Which may not seem like a big deal, but you have to remember there's no courtrooms, there's no judges, there's no juries. But rather, there's kind of unspoken rules about how you resolve conflict. And one of those rules is when you wrong someone, you, you had to make amends, you had to pay back the wrong that you committed, which is what Jacob is trying to do here. He's trying to pay Esau back. And to accept the gift was to close the matter, was to agree that the payment covers the wrong committed. It's to, to agree to put it to rest, which is why it's a huge deal when Esau accepts the gift. He's saying to Jacob that this matter is always and forever behind us. I will not make you pay anymore. And church, that's what we're after when it comes to total forgiveness. We were refusing to make the other person pay anymore. We treat the debt as paid in full. And we move towards unity and wholeness. Those are the lessons from the school of Esau. The pathway out of bitterness and into forgiveness comes through setting boundaries, through identifying with the wrongdoer and refusing to require them to pay the debt. So we've been to school. Now let's just go do it, right? Wrong. <laughs> it's too hard. Remember what, if you've seen the passage before in Luke 17, after Jesus gives this speech on forgiveness, he turns to the disciples. And do you remember what their response is? Lord, we don't have enough faith. <laughs> Increase our faith, Lord. It's too hard. It's too hard, God. We can't pull it off. We don't have enough faith. There's so one last thing I want to show you in this text that I think will help increase our faith. As you're listening to this story, I imagine many of you, it, it sounded strangely familiar. And that's because Jesus borrows from this very story for his parable of the prodigal son. It's the exact same image of the guilty one approaching, hoping to pay back the debt, and then the one who is owed, instead of demanding retribution, runs towards the one who is guilty and showers them with, with kisses. Jesus presents this as one of the most beautiful pictures of how our God responds to us when we run away from him. 
And Jacob makes this same connection here. Look again at verse 10. This is how he describes this gift that he's been given by Esau. He says, for I have seen your face and you have accepted me, which is like seeing the face of God. Such a beautiful and powerful line of scripture. Jacob is saying to the experience of the gift undeserved, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of grace given from one another is to see God's face because forgiveness, that's God's domain. That's where God shows his true character. His posture toward us is one who is showering upon us grace upon grace upon grace. Church, do you see how this this story of two brothers being reconciled, it actually points to a far greater story of reconciliation. Jesus, the King of Kings, Philippians 2, he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. Like Jacob, he bowed low. And like Jacob, he offered a gift, not to his brother, but to his heavenly father, the gift of his life. Church, don't miss this. On the cross, Jesus' final word was the Greek word to telestai. It's a word used in the business world way back then, written on receipts to show that that the bill had been paid in full. Jesus declares on the cross, the debt has been paid in full. God has wiped away our debt. He throws it out and he runs towards you like Esau and he embraces you with kisses, not as a servant, but as a son and a daughter. It's that profound and lavish act of forgiveness that empowers you and me to do likewise. To initiate towards those whom we've hurt with humility because we've known the sweetness of being forgiven. And to extend grace to those who have hurt us because we have been graced by God and we know that we are no better than they are. Church, let's do this work of reconciliation, striving after the oneness that exists in our Trinitarian God and that he is invited to enter into with him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess this work is so hard. It's too hard. We do not have enough faith. Father, increase our faith. Pour out your spirit upon us so that we can move towards people humbly acknowledging that we have done wrong. Pour out your spirit upon us so that we can extend grace to those who have hurt us, that same grace that you have lavishly poured out on us. God, would we strive after this oneness that you have invited us into and that you called us to live out amongst one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.